Good morning. I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Matthew. We're going to study together from chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew chapter 15, we are introduced to a, um, what was called the Syrophoenician woman. Um, could just call her the Grecian woman, but she was called the Syrophoenician woman. And there was an occasion when the Syrophoenician woman approached Jesus out of concern for her daughter. And you can imagine if you had a child and you, were, you knew that Jesus was nearby and Jesus had the ability to perform miracles and he could do great things, including he could heal your daughter, heal your child. What would you do with that knowledge? Well, you'd do the same thing I would. You'd go straight up to Jesus and tell him about the situation, the predicament that you're in, and ask him to heal your little girl or your little boy. And that is precisely what happened. And so Jesus is approached. Uh, Jesus, come and help me. Come heal my daughter. And how do you think Jesus responded? Well, uh, of course, I'll be right there. Yes, let's take care of that situation right now. No, that's not what happened at all. In fact, the Bible tells us that in that moment that Jesus answered not a word. And uh, my clicker's not working again, Austin, so if you don't mind, if I tell you to click that button, go right ahead. And so click the button. Um, he answered her not a word. One of the things I like about Bible study is I like to go in and I like to pull out um, things that I find interesting that perhaps we would normally just read over. And out of curiosity, I, I did some reading, um, various commentaries, and you know, as I was reading through commentaries on this passage, most of them just glossed right over that expression where Jesus answered not a word. But I don't think we can do that. In fact, I, don't, I believe in this so much that I want to spend our time together talking about what we learn from that occasion when Jesus answered this woman not a word. But before we get into that, I think it would be appropriate for us to dig into the text a little bit itself. And so, as is often my custom, I'd like to spend some time in examination of the text before we uh, pull out some observations and applications from the text. And so, an examination of the text. Matthew chapter 15, beginning with verse 21. Jesus, of course, has left Galilee. He's come into Phoenicia. And here we are. Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. And so Jesus has come into a Grecian land, a, a land of the dogs, the, the Jews would say, a land of the dogs. Uh, they have nots, those that are not up to par. Those that are nothing like us, not as good as us, the Jews would say. And so Jesus has come into this land, and, and here is a woman of this land, a Canaanite, a, a Phoenician woman. And the first words out of her mouth were these, Lord, have mercy. Now she uses the expression Lord, which is a very common expression from, from, a, from a Greek to a Jew, which would basically just say, I recognize you as someone of importance. That didn't have to be Jesus. It could just be a Jewish man. And so it's like she's calling him sir. But if we didn't have the next part of the text, we would think that's all she was saying. 
because it says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. Now we have a messianic greeting here. And so she is saying to him, Lord, son of David, Messiah. So we know then that she is not simply referring to Jesus as someone special, that is someone of some importance, simply a sir. But she is referring to him as the son of God. And so no doubt, word had gone through the land, even to the Gentiles, that Jesus was the Son of God, a man of extreme power and ability. And so, she was hopeful and counting on the fact that Jesus could heal her little girl. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou Son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil." demon, a wicked spirit. But he answered her not a word. We'll come back to that. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. Now what's happening here is she is constantly asking Jesus for his help. Over and over again. It's not just, O Lord, thou son of David, have mercy on me. But it's Lord, have mercy. Oh, Lord, have mercy on my... Oh, Lord, son of... Have mercy on my daughter. It's over and over. She's crying this out. But he doesn't answer a word. Now the disciples have come, and now they are begging him, but something different. Lord, son of David, Messiah, powerful one, great one, Savior of the universe... Allow that to marinate in your mind for a moment. Savior of the world. Send her away. For she crieth after us. Another way of saying it is, send her away. She's annoying the fire out of us. Get her to leave us alone. But he answered and said. Now notice, he answers not a word. Verse 23, verse 24. But he answered and said. Who's he talking to? He's not talking to the woman. He's not talking to the one who's coming asking for help and begging for mercy, but instead he responds to the disciples and he says, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Ouch. Can you imagine being that woman? Here here she is. She is a Gentile. She probably knows what's in the mind of all of these people that are are surrounding Jesus and maybe even thinking that this is in the mind of Jesus himself. I'm just a dog. I know he's Jesus, the Son of God. I know he's got power. I'm going to ask him to heal my little girl. But he doesn't even answer me. And when he does open his mouth, he sticks the knife in a little bit further and then he twists it a little bit. As if to say, he doesn't even care about me. Who does he care about? The least of the house of Israel. The Jews. Go a little bit further. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. I don't know if I would have done that. I, I, I don't know. It depends on how much I would have loved Rebecca. Uh, you, you know how much I love her. So I would have kept after it too. But I probably would have been tempted to change my approach a little bit. But she was not. In fact, the Bible says that when she came to him, she came in a worshipful spirit. She worshipped him saying, Lord, 
Kurios. Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread, remember, house of Israel, and to cast it to the dogs. Now, the disciples, they would have referred to her using the root of the Greek dog, but that's not how Jesus referred to her. See, Jesus shifts that word just a little bit, and he says, it is not me to take the children's bread and cast it, Emily, you ready for this? To the lap dogs, to the puppies, to the house pets. That's what Jesus says. In other words, he is not using it in in as quite of a derogatory term as what the Jews normally would have used. In fact, it is almost more of an endearing term. And so perhaps the lady is now questioning in her mind, how how does Jesus feel about me? What might he do for me? Is he going to help? And Jesus answered and said, or verse 27, and she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now wrap your mind around this for a second. Here you've got the Jews, here refer to masters. Here are the masters and they're sitting up at the table and they're having quite a feast and I mean, it, it's, it's an outback steakhouse kind of feast, right? Where you've got this nice big steak, you have these wonderful sides, and what do you have right in the middle of the table every time? Hot bread, right? Hot bread. And then the butter, you slice that bread, and then the butter melts on it just so, and, and I can just picture them pigging out on this, but they're a little bit uncouth in the way they do this and so they have crumbs left over on the table I don't have any crumbs left over mind you when I'm eating this but they have crumbs left over on the table and these crumbs are not little bitty crumbs they're they're rather large crumbs and you know what they do with these bread crumbs they use them to to wipe the the grease from their sweet potato fries They use them to wipe the grease off their hands from the food that they're picking up and eating with their hands. That's what they do with those breadcrumbs. And then after they're done using those large breadcrumbs to wipe their hands, they drop them in the floor. And the poor people, they come behind and they pick up those breadcrumbs and they eat them. And that's what this Syrophoenician woman, what this Grecian woman would have been accustomed to. She said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs. We eat of those crumbs which fall from their master's table. In other words, Jesus, what it is that you have to offer the Jews, we find valuable as well. And Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. What a powerful miracle story. As we think about this occasion in which Jesus was in the presence of not only this woman who needed her daughter to be healed, and these disciples who wanted Jesus to send this woman away, we are impressed by Jesus' response. You say, well, Jesus didn't respond. Oh, yes, he did. He answered not a word. 
I mentioned to you that we are going to have the young men stand before us on Wednesday. They're going to deliver some speeches, do this via Zoom. And I've been doing this for a long time, and one of the things that probably catches my heart more at the beginning of their lessons than anything else is when one of these young guys get up in nervousness, they go silent. Nothing. They have forgotten their introduction. They have forgotten their illustration. They have forgotten their first point. Why they have forgotten the text that they are to be presenting to us. And so they just go quiet. And we are all stayed in the audience pulling for him. You know, when I think about the things in the life of Jesus that we read about in the scripture, there are some things that don't impress us as much as they should, and perhaps as much as they used to. Now, think about this with me. And I'm going to speak in general terms, so this may not apply to you as an individual, but generally speaking, I want you to just think about this. How many times have you and I studied scripture from our youth to to now and looked at the miracles of Jesus? How many times have we done that? Wow, we've done it over and over and over again. We've been impressed through the book of John at those seven distinct miracles that tell us something special and unique about Jesus. And over and over again, we study these these miracles, this, this power of the God man who has the ability to restore life who has the ability to heal those who have a broken life. And are we as impressed by those miracles as we used to be? Do we have the same kind of reverential fear of God based on seeing His power in those miracles as we used to have? Knowing that the same God who could raise man from the dead could allow my soul to be condemned in eternal death? Do we have the same kind of fear of God when we think about his miracles? When we think about the birth of Jesus, do we stand in awe by that miraculous birth like we once did? It has become, if I can use this expression, the birth of Jesus has become commercialized through the years. And now we have, in the religious world, we have a special day that we signify as the birthday of Jesus, December the 25th. And preparation is made from the end of Christmas all the way to the beginning of Christmas to celebrate and honor Jesus and to go to church on that weekend. Does Jesus mean as much, the birth of Jesus mean as much to us as it once did? You think about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Every single first day of the week, you and I come together to partake of the Lord's Supper. And you think about the way the Lord's Supper has been partaken of since March, beginning with our, our 
our online participation in the Lord's Supper to the coming back and our participation in the Lord's Supper and how quick that process has become. I've been appreciative of how we have been spending, and I've watched this just out of interest, I've watched this participation in the Lord's Supper and the time that we spent doing that grow a little bit, expand a little bit. I think the beginning when we, when we did it, it's, it's so, I don't know, it's so, so strange, it's so uncomfortable, it's, it's so odd to, to the way that we have been doing it, not because it's wrong, just because it's different. And we struggle with things that are different, right? But now we've become a little more comfortable with it, and so we've expanded the amount of time that we spend in partaking of the Lord's Supper. And I think that's good. But we partake of the Lord's Supper every single week. I wonder, and again, I'm speaking in, ter- in general terms, I wonder, does the, does the death of our Lord, does it have the same pull on our heartstrings as it once did? When we think about the resurrection of Jesus, does it do anything to our heart like it once did? The power of that resurrection, the thought about what it means to our life, to our hope of eternal life. Again, the resurrection has become very commercialized through the years where there seems to be a special focus once a year that's termed by the religious world, Easter. And that's when we have, in many religious circles, the sunrise service to honor the resurrected Lord. Does the resurrection of Jesus have the same excitement and enthusiasm for us? Do we stand in awe and reverence of it? As we once did. You see, what I'm suggesting is these items that should be huge for the Christian the birth of the Christ, the death of the Christ, the resurrection of the Christ, the power and the might of the miracles of the Christ, those items that should just stay our hearts and cause us to be overwhelmed with emotion and, and, and to be excited by the power and the awesomeness of his might. They don't do as much for us sometimes as the silence of Jesus does. We are uncomfortable by the silence of Jesus. We're uncomfortable by the silence of God. You think about it. You ever prayed to God and at the conclusion of that prayer, allowing some time to pass and the things that you prayed about seemingly don't transpire? And you've been left wondering, did he even hear me? And if he did hear me, does he even care? Because he did not answer me the way I expected him to answer me. He was silent, if you will. Not really, but that's what we think. You see, there's something about the silence of Jesus that just causes us not to be comfortable. Why was Jesus silent? What are some things about his silence that, that we need not concern ourselves with? Go ahead and hit that, that button, and let's bring up a, a slide here. And I'm going to turn around because I, I can't see it. 
So when we think about Jesus' silence, we should, not, we should not misplace that for a thought of apathy or indifference. When Jesus was approached by this woman here in verse number 21 and following, you'll notice when he said, he answered her not a word, it wasn't because he lacked interest in her. But it was because he was guiding her psychologically to a response for her ultimate benefit. What was that response? It was the response of faith. Verse 28. O woman, great is thy faith. It's not that Jesus didn't care about her daughter. It's not that Jesus didn't care about her, herself. But it's Jesus cared about something deeper on the inside, that spiritual domain that ultimately means the difference between heaven and hell. That's what he cared most about. It's not that there was a lack of interest. Hit it again. We should not mistake that for preference over another. We should not think about his silence being the idea that he was respecting one group over another group. You'll notice here again in verse number 23, he answers not a word, though she continues to cry out. The disciples respond, and he, in turn, responds back to them. But again, we call our attention to verse number 28. O woman, great is thy faith. Great is thy confidence. Great is thy confidence that leads to action, which is obedience, which leads to victory in Jesus. You see, Jesus was as equal in his desire for the Jews to be saved as he was for the Gentiles to be saved, but there was a planned process. In Romans chapter 1, in fact, if you'll just leave your finger there in Matthew and very briefly turn over with me to, act, to Romans chapter 1, listen to what Paul says in verse number 14. I am debtor both to the Greeks, the Gentiles, like the Syrophoenician, and to the barbarians, to the wise, to the unwise. And as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. You say, well, this is, this is not Jesus, this is Paul. True. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that he came not to, not to be of his own mind, but to be of the mind of Christ. When I came to speak unto you, I came not to speak with eloquence of speech or sophistry, as we might say, but I came to preach unto you the whole counsel of God. What was that counsel of God? That counsel of God says, I care about the Jews and I care about the Gentiles. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So you see a process. The Jews first were going to be saved according to Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 9. And then in Acts chapters 9 and 10, the Gentiles are grafted in their being saved. And so don't misunderstand Jesus' silence as, I don't care as much about the Gentiles as I care about the Jews. There was a plan that he was a part of and that was to be followed. 
So what do we learn about Jesus' silence? Hit, hit the button again. When Jesus was silent, we learned something about ourselves. We learned something about ourselves. What did we learn about ourselves when Jesus was silent? Look at what she learned about herself. And again, verse 22 this time, A woman of Canaan came out of the coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed. But he answered not a word. She comes back again, worshiping him and saying, Lord, help me. And he responds, not identifying her as a human being, but identifying her as less than a human being. Identifying her as a dog, not on the same level as the Jews would have referred to her as, but still, nonetheless, a dog. It is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. We live in a culture... And we live in a society that if we're not careful, we can prop ourselves up into being something better than we really are. By that I mean a God unto ourselves. Why, there is even a religion that has that as its construct, New Ageism, a Western form of Hinduism. All is one. All is God. You're God. I'm God. But don't get the big head because the pew that you're sitting in is God too. You see, that's the idea. That's the culture in which we live. We are better than we think ourselves sometimes. But then on the flip side of that, don't think too less of yourself either because the Bible says that you were created in the image of God. And so there is a sense in which some positive self-talk is important and vital to our own lives. But having said that, Jesus was helping her to see and helping all of us to see that in his silence, we are nothing without God. You know, you and I, we come into this place seeking to be blessed. We come into this place on Sunday morning wanting to be blessed by the music, wanting to be blessed by the prayer service, wanting to be blessed by the Lord's Supper part of the service, wanting to be blessed by the the sermon that we hear, and we leave this place feeling less than blessed. Why is that? May I suggest it's because we came into this place thinking too highly about ourselves. Rather, than thinking about the other people that are going to be there and the God above that was going to be there and bringing something of ourselves to this place. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to his cross I'll cling. Sometimes we come to this place without clinging to the cross, don't we? Second of all, hit the button again. When Jesus was silent, we learned not only something about ourselves, but we learned something about Jesus. Salvation has come not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Salvation has come not because it had to, but because God wanted it to. Again, with that idea of having a little bit too much of a big head, we think, 
well, I'm owed this. God owes it to me to save my soul. God, God owes something. No, God doesn't owe us anything. Click, click the slide again. I want to share with you something. Helmut Thielich said, and I make bold to say that even the most orthodox church man will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is continually surprised that mercy has been shown unto him. You can hit it again. Do you stay constantly surprised that God could be that good to you? That God could be that good to me? That God would not allow, but that God, quite literally, Matthew 26 and 27, would kill His Son for you and for me. Do you maintain surprise about that? Hit the button again. We not only learn something about ourselves and something about Jesus... We learn something about faith. If you go back to the text again, it must have taken a great amount of faith for this Grecian woman to step up in the presence of these Jews and the son of David, Messiah himself, and say, Lord, heal my little girl. It must have taken an element of faith, a great amount of faith for her to do that. It must have taken even greater faith. For while Jesus remained silent in that moment and the disciples speak up saying, get rid of this annoying woman, for her to then come on her knee in worship and say, Lord, help me. Only to have him then respond by saying, You're a dog. But notice the faith that she had. Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. I don't think I would have had the guts. Hit the button again. McLaren wrote, She has flung the sack of his promises at his feet and he cannot step over it you talk about causing the Lord to step back and take another look at this moment we talk about how Jesus sometimes hits us in the middle of our life this woman hit Jesus in the middle of his ministry When Jesus was silent, what do you learn about your faith? Verse 28, Jesus acknowledged her faith. Great is thy faith, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. It is, you can hit the button again. It is very easy, I think, for us to stand here in this nice wooden pulpit or sit on those nice wooden pews or sit in your nice home if you're watching this online and think to yourself, you know, 
I'm a member of the body of Christ. I'm a member of the church of Christ. I'm a Christian. I have been saved by grace through faith. And I am on my way to heaven. You can read about us in the New Testament, don't you know? Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ salute you. I have done precisely what the Bible lays out I must do to become a Christian. I have repented of my sins. I have confessed my faith in Jesus, Matthew 10. I have uh, been baptized for the forgiveness of my sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. I have done those things. I worship God every first day of the week as he tells me to, Acts 2 and verse 42 and Acts 20 and verse 7. I am doing these things on a regular basis. I'm sitting in this place of comfort recognizing that those outside of Christ and his kingdom are lost. That is easy. And it's lazy. And it's hateful. You see, it's one thing to sit in a place of comfort and look outside and acknowledge the lostness of the world. It is another thing entirely to go into that world And look people in the eye. And be okay with their lostness. When we acknowledge Jesus for what he is and for what he did for me. When I think about Jesus and his silence... There's so much that I can learn. You can click it again. What have you learned? What have you learned about yourself? What have you learned about the Lord? What have you learned about your faith and your practice of it? Some things to think about. As together we now stand and as we sing.